Welcome to the Running Explained podcast. I'm your host, Elizabeth. I'm a marathoner, coach, and answer seeker. When I first started running at the age of 29, I had so many questions and what felt like nowhere to turn to for answers. And now I'm here to answer all your running questions about anything that you might want to know. If you're a new runner or you've been doing this for a long time, there's always something more to learn about running. So let's get started. My guest this week is physical therapist, Dr. Sarah Louie, AKA Dr. Sarah, the hip doc. Sarah's entire physical therapy practice is working with female runners with hip pain. Yeah, there are a ton of you out there and she is here to help you. So Sarah is on the show this week to talk to us about our hips, about hip pain, about the hip structure, about ways we can bulletproof our hips for running, even if you don't have any issues, ways that you can improve your hip strength, hip control, and just help you become a better runner through optimizing your hips. And don't forget, if you're looking for help and guidance with your training, Running Explained has you covered. I have a ton of training plans available for all experience levels and volumes, including 5K, half marathon, 10K, marathon, base building, and speed-based training plans, as well as master classes, the Training Plus program for our, my self-coached runners out there, and of course, one-on-one coaching if you are looking for that next level of truly individualized programming. So don't forget, all this is available on my website, runningexplained.co. Sarah, welcome to the show. I'm excited to have you here. So excited to be on. This is going to be really fun. So before we get started and spill all the tea about how to bulletproof your hips as a runner, go ahead and tell us, how did you become a runner? Yeah, so I grew up playing competitive soccer. I grew up in the Midwest, and that's what you do. You just play sports because there's nothing else to do. That's not true, but a little bit. Um, So I grew up playing competitive soccer. I joined a club team when I was in the third grade. And I remember in high school, just in the summer, being like, oh, I want to stay in shape. So I ran at this loop around my neighborhood. It was like three miles every day over the summer. And I was like, this is so fun. Um, And when I retired from competitive soccer, it was just such an easy transition for me to release some of my like competitive edge, get my endorphin high, connect with people um, and like have something that I can accomplish as like a adult that is no longer in competitive sports. Did you find that transition challenging from, I know I've worked with a lot of uh, athletes who played team sports and sometimes at a very high level before and transitioning into being like a, a primarily focused on being an endurance runner. It requires a bit of a mindset shift sometimes. Totally, totally, totally. I really luckily had such an easy transition. I was so burnt out of organized competitive sport. And for me to, I'm super intrinsically motivated. So like, I love just getting out there to get out there because I know the reward of like feeling good is going to be so high. Um, so I really just, I had a great transition into, into running and it was like my space to do what I wanted. And then, uh, I could serve and work and, and do stuff outside of that. So tell us where your physical therapy journey came from. Did you always know you wanted to be a doctor of physical therapy? Yeah. Oddly enough, I literally knew since I was probably in the third grade, there was a girl on my first soccer team who her mom was a physical therapist and she would say, you know, what she did at work. And I was like, that's so cool. We had like anatomy in high school, which was like an elective, fell in love with it, was just always on the track. Um, And in in college, they really deter you. Like, are you sure? Because it's super competitive, hard to get into. Yeah, I've literally not known anything else that I want to do. Um, so I just stuck on the track and it really always, always made sense for me, me to just keep doing it. I imagine like most of the other physical therapists I've talked to, as you progress through your career, you realize like, oh, this is the one thing that I really see over and over again. This is the one thing I really care about. And for you, it seems like it's working with runners and yeah. especially focusing on hips. Yeah. Yeah. Women runners with hip pain. I tell people what I do. Like I just tell them I work with women runners with hip pain and they're like, Oh, okay. Like I used to tell people I'm a physical therapist. I'm like, wow, that's amazing. So the shift has just been really funny. Um, but I like finished physical therapy school, went into an orthopedic residency and fellowship and had a ton of 
mentorship and opportunity to like see and really dive into all the different areas of the body. Um, in that process, I developed my own hip pain that really took me out of running. And I didn't feel like there was anyone that was guiding me both in physical therapy and in running to get me back to what I wanted to do. And I felt like I was falling short for a lot of my patients that were runners in the generic physical therapy world. Um, so I was like, well, let's just fix this problem and I'll just be the person that like marries the two of them and gives runners what they need instead of calling them crazy. Now, somebody might think like, wow, are there really that many? I mean, I know you work specifically with female runners. Are there really that many female runners with hip pain that she can make a whole practice out of it? And as a full-time running professional and running coach, I can tell you, oh yeah, I bet that you see plenty of people in need of this specific type of care. Yeah, it is wild. In the beginning, I was like scared. Like I was like, should I really niche down this hard? And even via just, we'll just say Instagram. Like, I mean, I have people messaging me daily being like, I saw your account and started crying. Like, I'm like, this is, it's just such a, it's such a gift to be able to like really hear and serve these people. Before we dive into the thing a little bit more, I want to, I want to touch on what you said about people feeling validated that they're not mm. broken. There's nothing wrong with them because I've worked with plenty of runners who've gone through tradition through like traditional PT, like they were referred through insurance, to like their local kind of, you know, town physical therapist. And yeah. obviously, you know, those people are credentialed. They went to school. They yeah. had to, you know, they, they know what they're doing, but yes. our population is so specific. Runners are such a specific type of need that sometimes, like you said, traditional physical therapy, isn't it might not leave you feeling like you said validated heard like there's nothing wrong with you like no you don't have to stop running we you know that i've i've worked with a ton of runners who have been so discouraged by physical therapy in the past and they're like no but i went there and like they just gave me these stretches and like never yeah. told me to stop running and it's like well then that wasn't the physical therapist for you yeah Yeah, for sure. I remember when I was going through my injury, something that my PT said to me that just made everything click. So I was like, I can stand, I can weight train, I can work a full day without pain on my feet, 12 hours. Why can't I run? And she's like, running is a really high level activity. You're requiring like coordination and everything at a really fast speed for a long period of time. So it takes a really high level of training and specificity of training to get you there. Um, and not everyone, uh, is maybe training you specifically for that. The more I learn about the human body and about running, I'm going to make a blanket statement, which obviously is not true, but it does seem like it all kind of comes back to the hips. A lot of things in running when something's going a little bit funky or a little bit sideways from inefficiencies in your gait cycle to actual injuries oftentimes we're, we are tracing that back to something that's happening in the hips. And obviously like, you're like, yep, this is totally exactly what I do. And obviously not everything is caused by originates in the hips, but it does seem like this is a huge place where a lot of things start. Mm -hmm. Uh, is this what you tend to see? Um, gosh, that's a really good question. I would say yes and no. So I love the hip. I'm, it's my favorite thing about the body. I'm obsessed with it clearly, but I don't think it's the most important. I think whatever is driving your symptoms is the most important. So part of my training is I've been trained to see what's the primary driver. Is it actually like for me personally, it's my ankle. I've had so many ankle sprains that I have poor joint mobility, which causes me to have for all of these different reasons, hip pain. So for me, like my primary driver is the ankle and that's probably the most important thing. Um, secondarily, hip, third, third, dearly, tertiarily, low back. So it's really whatever is your symptom driver. I love that. And I love that you corrected me on that because you are obviously hundred percent correct on that. And I, the reason I'm glad that you brought this up is that, and we talked about this on the podcast before, is that so often when we as runners are experiencing some sort of pain or discomfort or something that doesn't seem like it's working correctly, it doesn't always originate in the place where the symptom is showing up. So like you said, you can have hip pain, but maybe it's being caused by something else or conversely, like maybe you have foot pain, but it could be originating from the hips and that's 
part of what makes this such a, I mean, on one hand, like a fun puzzle for the practitioner, but a very frustrating yeah. process for the runner who's injured or just wants not to be injured anymore. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And when you're looking and when you're working with people like runners, there's just so many variables that go into it. And runners oftentimes feel like they're the ones that need to figure it all out where really it's, it's a, it's a big picture and it's a tough puzzle that you don't have to take on yourself. So what do you feel is the classic profile of the runners that you see? If somebody comes to you like more often than not, this is what I tend to see when it comes to, you know, their, their athlete profile, maybe their strength and mobility profile. What are some of the common denominators in that? Yeah. So, I mean, I'm super niche in the fact that like, if you look at my demographic, even like my Instagram insights, like I'm getting women ages 25 to 45 with hip pain. And most of my gals are uh, hypermobile. So they have increased mobility in their hip joints and the joints of their body um, and have uh, most of them have like anterior medial groin hip pain um, and they have soreness with running. I love the hypermobility thing because that's there's so often when we talk about running, we talk about strength and mobility and you got to mobilize and strengthen. But like you said, there is a subset of the population where they have more mobility than they need. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Like I will get um, a ton of clients who are like, I've been told to stretch or I've been told to do like the big thing now is like these hip cars and like these 90, 90 hip mobilizations and like getting into these crazy positions. And they're like, why isn't this working for me? And I'm like, for your tissue profile and your makeup, these things actually are not like specific enough to fit your needs. Do you work with some of these runners who don't know that they're hypermobile? Um, Yes. Yes. I would say so. Some of these gals are like, no, I know. They're like, everyone's told me I'm hypermobile, like for sure, for sure. Um, but some people aren't as like on the spectrum of hypermobility. They, they maybe don't fall into like what we call Gumby where you're just kind of like flopping all over the place. Um, maybe it really just is like that hip is more hypermobile than the other one. Um, and it's kind of the slight difference that Honestly, you, you wouldn't really know unless you've had someone test and tell you. Why is that an issue with causing hip pain and hip issues? Yeah, so hypermobility, if it is left uncontrolled. So let's say, um, I always use the example of like a golf ball on a golf tee. Um, let's say if it's a really windy day, people that are hypomobile will have or like stiffer if the wind blows, it's going to not really blow that, that golf ball off the golf tee super easily. If they're more hypermobile, they're going to have more of a chance for that golf ball to fall off the golf tee, which I use that analogy because the hip is kind of like this ball and socket joint. And no, your hip's not going to dislocate. The golf ball is not going to like rip off the golf tee. Um, but we need a little bit more support for our hyper hypermobile people to allow that suction of the hip joint to like stay congruent and move more comfortably. Um, so we need like more muscle recruitment. We need more, uh, we need improved motor control patterns around the hip. We need better muscular endurance all the way up and down the chain to allow you to run, move, sit comfortably. Let's talk about the hip complex, the hip joint, the function of the hip, bring you back to a little A and P, a little anatomy and physiology, because yeah. if we know what something is made of and how it functions, I think it helps people understand better, like why certain things tend to happen. So like, obviously you are the expert, but I'm going to say, so we're dealing with the hip. We have, like you said, a joint. So there's bone involved, but we also have muscles and like ligaments and tendons and a lot. So there's a lot going on here. Um, talk to us about the basic structure of the hip. Yeah, this is a great question. So I like to think of the hip as like a box. So if you think of like a 3D box, let's think of inside that box of being like the joint. So we have the ball and socket joint, that's inside of there. 
uh, we have the two bony structures, so the pelvis and then like the head of the femur that creates the bone socket. Around that, we have the hip joint capsule and then all of the muscles and tendons and ligaments that are like inserting into that box. That's like the local hip joint. Um, outside of that, let's think of like, what are the structures that are surrounding and keeping that box like upright and afloat? So if we look at the outer edge, we're going to have like the glute need and like some of our external rotator groups of the hip. If we look at the in the innermost portion, we'll have like the pelvic floor muscles. If we look above, we have our trunk, like abdominals, low back, uh, the mediastinum, which is like all of the abdominal things. Um, in the front, we have hip flexors and quadriceps and the back, the glute, and then beneath it, hamstrings and um, quads, which are lower. And we really need all of those things to be turning on and structurally uh, strong and sound to like keep that box afloat and not have like part of it getting smushed. So this is, I mean, I'm just hearing you describe all these different structures and like thinking there are so many different areas and I, you know, think about, um, potential po failure points, right? There are so many yeah. different points, areas in the hip, different structures, which could individually become a problem. And then it's kind of like cascades into like, oh, and then the entire structure becomes affected. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And I think it's, um, that is where it gets sticky is it's like, a classic one, classic, classic one is uh, your glute need. Everyone's like your glute needs weak. So everyone's sitting there at the PT office, sideline doing their clamshells. And they're like, I'm working on my glute need. I'm working on my glute need too. And it's like, that's great. Like most of us actually probably have glute needs. It's kind of a harder, uh, it's a harder muscle to recruit because of where it is and positions that it fires and whatnot. Um, but if we're just working on that, we can be missing all of these other parts of the puzzle that could be caused by, uh, that could be causing you to have a weak glute need or your weak glute need could, you know, it can have a reciprocal effect on, on what's going on. That also seems to fall into the category of like, because it's, it's so easily like I can, I mean, for the, the glute med, the glute medius, it, it's that, uh, kind of side hip muscle, right? Yes. So yeah. I think we can all kind of, I'm sitting down right now. I'm kind of like poking at my glute med. It's right here on my hips. I think we all, most runners know if we saw a diagram, we're like, oh yeah, that muscle. Okay. That makes sense. Um, but it's like, it's one of those things where it's so easy to be like, all right, I can, I can understand, I can visualize where it is in my body. It's something, a muscle that's kind of on the exterior. So I don't have to like visualize what it might look like on the interior. I can yeah. do clamshells. I can feel the burn when I do the clamshells. And then it, it's very satisfying for the runner to, to feel like they are doing something to yeah. quote unquote, fix the hip problems. And mm -hmm. it's not to say we shouldn't do these things, but yeah, we're no. saying it might be more complicated than that. Yeah, totally. Can totally be more complicated than that. Um, and yeah, it's all about just figuring out what is driving your individual symptoms or, you know, if you're pain free, then like, what are the things that uh, you should be doing to just maintain that? Do you often see, and I guess what the difference is would be for runners who present with issues on one side or on both sides? Yeah, so I will classically see one side, um, and and there's a variety of reasons that can happen. I often will see if people go untreated for, like, they just don't get help for their hip, sometimes the other side will start. That's something that I've been noticing more often, um, which is an indicator that you should get treated earlier and ask for help. Uh, so it doesn't cascade to the other side. Not that that always happens, but it's just a pattern that I've been noticing. I mean, the the whole, like, if I just ignore it, maybe it'll go away. Like, I'll just take a week off of running and maybe it'll go away. Like, not really how we address injuries. <laughs> yes. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. yeah. No. Do you have a lot of runners who come to you and say, well, like, I took a week off and it seemed to get better. And then I started ramping up my mileage again. Or I started training for this thing and then it started hurting again. And, like, I can't continue to take time off because I need to train for this thing. Yeah. Yeah. I will be really honest and say that most runners come to me that come to me are on their last leg. Like they're, that's a poor analogy to say right now, but they're frustrated. They, most people that sign on with me have worked with 
lots of other people. They're really frustrated. Uh, they feel like, you know, something has failed them um, and, and they need help. So, I mean, I think they've probably tried multiple bouts of rest um, or they're like, literally, even I have elite runners that are like, I haven't ran in a year and a half. I haven't ran in two years um, because people have just told me that I need to keep resting. Man, that's frustrating. It is, it is frustrating. And like, I mean, I have one runner. I remember like I met her on quotes a year ago, a little bit more than a year ago. And we were chatting and she's like, oh, I think I'm just going to go check in with my doctor and, and do these things. And I was like, great, totally go do that. Um, and she is a, she's a virtual coaching client. So she was a little bit hesitant about doing some of the online, um, coaching, uh, you know, work with me, which is fair because I'm not seeing you face to face. She went through a year of just not getting better and not getting the guidance for, they were telling her exercises to do, but they weren't telling her, okay, let's try running. Let's see how this feels when you do this much and then, and then rest and then see it again. Um, and, a year later, she came to me and was like, okay, let's do it. And probably within three weeks of us working together, she started running. We started run walk and then she got right into a mile continuous and she's doing a sprint. She's a triathlete. She's doing a sprint triathlon. Um, gosh, I want to say like early next month, which is phenomenal. Like it's just incredible. Wow. I not, I obviously we can't put a timeline on these types of things too, but like it, it's, I will say as somebody who's been in PT personally, who sends athletes to PT when they need to, like it is in your best interest to get the right help. And so you can get back to running as For soon sure. as possible. Yeah. I, I really just, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. So there's a couple of things I want to ask you about like hip injuries. And obviously the majority of injuries that we're talking about with runners are going to be overuse injuries in some capacity, chronic overuse. Yeah. I find in speaking with athletes about injury, the hip area is one of the most challenging um, areas for them to describe their symptoms accurately or in a way that like they feel like they're communicating what they're feeling. Yes. Um, because there's so many different ways, like achy, stabby, deep, shallow, like, you know, like all these different burnings, you know, is that something that you, your very first step is like, let's just see if we can find the words to describe what you're feeling. Yeah. Yeah. So interestingly enough, the, that is totally something that I see as well. And the hip may be more, I actually don't know if this is true, but I will say this. The hip may be more so than the knee or the, definitely the foot has very poor, hopefully I get this right somatotrophic organization. So if you think of when you stab your finger, like you like get, you know, your finger gets poked, you're like, no, 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 it hurts right here. Like I know it hurts right here because your brain has a ton of receptors to, you know, delineate what you're feeling on your pinky finger versus your thumb. For your hip, it's so close to your abdomen. It has the same sensation of when you're like, my stomach hurts, but you don't know if it's your liver or if it's your gallbladder that's hurting you. Like, it's just, it's hard to delineate. Is it my hip flexor? Is it my labrum? Is it my nerve? And there's some words that help to um, describe kind of what kind of pain is going on. But I think the thing that helps me the most is understanding uh, your aggravator. So what makes you feel worse and then what makes you feel better those descriptors are a little bit more helpful for me to delineate what's going on. Are there anything that you see? Like, it, what are those? Like, oh, I tend to see, you know, people describe this type of injury this way when it's, and when they do this is when it's aggravated. Yeah, for sure. So, um, one of the classic, well, I will delineate it this way is, um, one of like the classic ways that you can delineate if it's like, true hip pain as opposed to maybe something else is if it's really in like that groin area, like that kind of medial, uh, medial groin area that classically is, is true hip pain. So there's going to be something going on like at the hip joint, maybe some pelvic floor adductor involvement for getting more like lateral to the side glute posterior hip pain. 
that is a little bit more indicative of like maybe some low back, uh, sciatic, uh, just different neural structures that are there or could be referring more to the posterior hip. Interesting. So when I think, you know, people will point to their hip and say the outside of my hip hurts right here, kind of that like upper side butt area. <laughs> yeah. Um, you're saying, okay, that might be hip related, but it might be that it is like you said, more low back or if we're kind of pointing elsewhere, but we're talking about when you're working with runners who are experiencing true hip pain, that is like, we're talking like in the hip, like yeah. in the meat, in the yeah. muscle. Yeah. They're like, it's just deep in there. Like they're like, it's just in there. Like they just will keep pointing them. They're like, this is where it is. It's like, yeah, it's just in there. That's, that's, <laughs> that's what they tell me. Is this something that runners will often describe as like an achiness or a soreness or is it more of like a stabbing or a throbbing obviously like the severity depends on obviously what it is depends but what are the For most sure. common descriptors associated with classic hip injuries yeah so i would say for runners specifically most people that have hip problems will say will not describe it as like stabby sharp achy because it is those overuse things Stabby sharp achy is more like, oh my gosh, like every time I'm like stepping, it's like, you know, it's hurting me. Uh, for runners, it's mostly like there's just been like a ton of increased friction at that spot for, you know, miles and miles and miles. And then sometimes it'll get a little bit sore and achy um, or I'll have like a dull kind of diffuse pain. Uh, another fun one for the hip is, especially for my hypermobile gals, is like, clicking and popping like it sounds like the circus for a lot of a lot of us hip gals um obviously when we're dealing with any sort of injury that could have a bone injury involvement right you want to rule that out are there mm -hmm. any red flags that you are like you need to get imaging done today if a runner comes to you and says these words or describes these symptoms yeah for sure for sure so this is actually like something that I feel really passionate about. One of the doctors that I work, work with, um, well, <laughs> this is funny. Two of the doctors that I work with, one of them, I got in trouble because I was referring people back to him too, too much. And he's like, do you not trust me, Sarah? And I was like, well, I just need to make sure that this person does not have cancer. This person does not have a bone stress injury. And then um, one of the other doctors is like, wow, you're just so thorough on this. And I'm like, because it's, like, I can't confidently tell you that you could run if I think that you have a bone stress injury. Um, but one of, or some of the signs and symptoms that are like red flaggy to me um, are like, can you weight bear without pain? Um, so like, if you're like the gal that I was working with, like she couldn't stand, her symptoms weren't super high and irritable, but she couldn't stand on a single limb without having pain. Um, she couldn't run at all, like without having pain. So it was like, as soon as it started, she had pain. It didn't really get worse, but she wasn't able to um, run without pain. So if your pain's not decreasing and it's it's a relatively kind of new new thing for you, it doesn't feel super chronic-y, um, that's a red flag. Um, another one is like any signs of, of infection. Unfortunately, like the, uh, psoas can be a place to have like infection. So redness, warmth, um, something that looks like almost skin related, just go to the doctor immediately. Um, and then the last one is night pain. So if you're having pain that is like, kind of like wakes you up out of your sleep, not necessarily because you're like turning over or you stretched or whatever, but it's just like, I just wake up at like, you know, three in the morning and like my hip just hurts and like, I can't, I can't get rid of it. And that's kind of the main symptoms. Um, that's a great time to go to the doctor immediately. I would imagine that, I mean, knowing what you just said about the way that kind of our nerves and our neural mapping works, works in our hips, like, and having worked with several runners who've actually had bone stress injuries in their hips. Yeah. It's by the time the pain is noticeable, it's probably already not great. Like yeah. quite a bit for your body to even really register that. And and yeah. that's something I think to be really just cautious about. For sure, for sure. And you have to think of how thick your bones are at the hip level. Um 
there's different like severities of stress fracture sites. So like having a stress fracture at your, you know, fifth metatarsal on your foot, which is just like a a bone in your foot. It's maybe, maybe a little bit less severe than having a a hip uh, stress fracture of like your femoral head, because the amount of force needed to degrade your foot bone, that's like constantly, you know, being pounded into the ground versus like the neck of your femoral head, which is like your hip bone, which is a thicker bone, um, is more. And so therefore there's, there's probably more going into that, that created a stress fracture or a stress injury. By and large, do the runners that you work with come that you, who come to you, right. They're like, you know, end of the line. Like I've tried everything, right. We've probably ruled out bone stress injuries for the most part. But yeah. what are the most common types of injuries and issues that you do see? Yeah. Um, so for the hip in particular, I mean, most of my people have hip pain. Some people have knee pain. I have a couple of people with, um, with back pain. But I would say labral tears are, symptomatic labral tears are pretty big. Um, ladies with FAI, which is femoral acetabular impingement, so either like the head of their femur is too big to fit into the socket or the socket is too small for their head. They'll kind of have some achy, stiff hips. Um, And then another one is hip dysplasia. So there's a, uh, like with that one, the head of your femur is either malformed or just doesn't, like it's some deviation outside of what it quote unquote should be. And you um, just aren't having a great, a great fit of your femoral head into the acetabulum and then there's soreness with that. How do we deal with these injuries that are a result of essentially morphology differences? Yeah. Yeah. So the, the great thing for most people is that like, no one's perfect. The great thing for everyone is that no one's perfect. Like, you know, if you were to take a healthy individual and throw them into an MRI machine and just look at their whole body and then do a whole body x-ray, you would probably find some crazy stuff. Like you'd be like, dang, you have arthritis in your shoulder. Your rotator cuff is torn. And they'd be like, what? Like, I didn't even know any of these things. Um, And then for some of us, we have both, you know, these anatomical findings coupled with symptoms. And uh, the best things that you can do if you're having some sort of, you know, symptom at your hip is... I kind of go through my uh, pyramid, I guess I call it. So let's make sure that you have really good control around your hip. Like let's make sure that you're moving in a general uh, or with patterns that are like not too far outside the norm. So a really common one people know is like valgus of your knees. So like if you're squatting, are your knees like diving inward a ton? Um, that's kind of what I'm talking about. Like making sure that you're able to stand on a single limb, uh, lunge forward, uh, squat with quote unquote, like relatively good form. Um, so controls first. And then I love to just build endurance around, uh, the, the area that is, is sore, um, and then strength or, or really tailoring your exercises to what your running or physical activity demands are. I love this, like, you know, relatively good form or kind of within the range of acceptable movement because yeah. there, I mean, if you spend any time on like a lot of, you know, kind of, I would say bodybuilding Instagram or TikTok, right. Yes. There's always like the, there's one perfect way. And if you're outside this one perfect way, you're doing it wrong and you're going to hurt For yourself. Sure. And it's like, okay, hold up. Like we're good. It's not, it's not that bad. But what you are saying is that, yeah, there are like movement patterns that are visible that are when you get beyond this certain, you know, movement pattern, I'll, I'll use, um, you know, maybe hip drop as an example. Right. And we, I actually wanted to ask you about this specifically, because it's like, well, how can somebody know if maybe like, maybe they're at risk for, or like, you know, what they might be able to improve in their movement patterns if they're even not, not injured, but things where it's like, you can see it. Yeah. I mean, some of it's probably fine. A lot of it, that's not great. Yeah. 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 So with all of these different uh, movement impairments, it's tricky because like, I don't want to be fear mongering and be like, you know, 
you probably have these movement impairments, uh, but you might, you totally might. And, and it might be, uh, you know, something that rears its face later. Um, I would say if you want to be, which this is actually something that's emerging in the physical therapy world. If you want to be super proactive about it, um, there are different practices around the United States that are doing these really cool things called like diagnostic movement screens. And it's basically like going to your yearly physical, but for your body. So it's like uh, one of my friends, uh, Dr. Kevin Melendez, he works at Swish Physical Therapy in Florida. And this is his whole practice. So he literally brings people in, in his community. Um, it's, it's proud to pay. So you just pay whatever you think it's worth. And he will take you through uh, all of the major like movements. So he'll like do a uh, like a screen of like what your range of motion is, what your strength is, and then some basic movement screens like squatting, single leg stance, whatnot. Um, and and he'll be like, wow, like you have really poor balance on your right side, and you're 16. You know, like you should in in a relatively quote unquote normal body, like you should have better control than that. Um, so I think that's a really cool system a lot of cash pay physical therapy places like if you ask to have a movement screen for running they would probably be super game um and then i have like a diy it's called the runner's self-checkup it's my movement screen that's like 12 it's a 12 piece assessment and you can score yourself and see uh kind of where you stack up like do you have hip drop do you not kind of thing that's so cool is that on your website um, yes, it's mo- probably most easily found in my link tree on my Instagram. Cool. So people can go check that out. I'm always up yeah. for a good movement screen. That's really interesting. Yeah. It's something I want. I, mean, I don't know. I, I've gotten a lot more questions recently about quote unquote running technique, which for some yeah. reason like that phrase just kind of like rubs me the wrong way. Like I hate, yeah. I hate that. Like even I though I, running is a skill, right? Is a skill-based sport, skill-based movement patterns. Yes. You can learn to become more economical and more efficient and all these types of things. But like the phrase running technique just is like, it's like nails on a chalkboard. Um, yeah. but that it's, it's understanding that, and you watch any professional race, you watch any, you know, track races, you watch any, you know, elites in the marathon, there are absolutely different movement patterns that work for different runners and have them be most efficient. And like the fact that some people are proposing that we force every single person to run the exact same way. Like I honestly think that's doing people a disservice. Yeah, for sure. There's a really cool study done. I think it's like more, more at all. Um, and they were looking at, I don't remember the exact athletes that they were looking at, but they were looking at a group of athletes that, um, were not like elite, elite athletes. Like they weren't like, you know, the Olympic qualifiers for whatever. Um, and they were looking at the different, some different markers for how they're running and their running technique. Uh, so like, you know, uh, trunk, uh, rotation and arm swing and foot strike and all these different variables. And they were like, do we need to be changing these variables to fit inside of like a certain norm? And they found in this study that changing your technique on, uh, without expert coaching and like really, like really, really like expert coaching and like guidance along the whole process um, for most of these variables was actually like not advantageous for the runner and could lead to more injury, uh, you know, with, with changing that. The only one that was found to have like some improvement with, uh, like running, uh, efficiency and yeah, running efficiency, we'll say is your stride length. So like your self-selected stride length, which like, as a runner, there's time, there's like this small, uh, window that I feel like you're like, that feels uncomfortable if I'm striding that far, or that feels uncomfortable if I'm striding that shallow. Um, and like self-selecting that showed to be fine, which I feel like that steps up. I've also, I also know that oftentimes when a runner does have, we'll call them just issues with their running form, 
it's typically traced back to some sort of limitation or deficiency mm -hmm. somewhere else. And obviously because running so much of that, what we're trying to do with running, right? It, it is, the hips are very involved in that. It seems yeah. like a lot of that stuff might come back to, are your hips mobile enough to do what you're trying to do? Are they strong enough to control what you're trying to do? And do they have the endurance to do it for a long, long time? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The thing that is really cool about really all of the joints of the body, um, but we can just talk about the hips, is that they, their main job with like the muscles and the joints and whatnot with running is to conserve energy. So like we, with, with our hips, we have hip rotation and hip drop that's going on as we're striding forward. You as your, as a runner want to run, you want to have as much range of motion as you need in those ways to propel you forward, but the least amount of range of motion that you need that won't like, uh, use more energy. Uh, so you can be more efficient as you're moving. So I think that's just really, really cool to think about and trace back like, Oh yeah, if I have too much hip drop and therefore more inefficient and like might be having some injury because one part of my body is working way harder than it should be. I also, I mean, I like to remind people that, you know, all the, the movement, like you're not going to get a hundred percent movement going forward, right? Yeah. We do go up and down a little bit. We do go side to side a little bit. That's all very normal, but like excessive movement just essentially means you're sending energy off into yeah. other directions. Like you're sending energy off into the sky and you're sending energy yeah. off to the left and off to the right. Um, but thinking about it that way, like our, the whole point of becoming really, really good endurance runners is that efficiency and economy. Like how can we go farther while using less energy because we become more efficient in our movement patterns? Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally, totally, totally. And I think it's really cool. I personally hate training it during running. I think it doesn't even make sense to be like, like, okay, let me try to squeeze my glute a little bit harder as I'm like, it just doesn't sound enjoyable or, you know, really doable. I love training those patterns outside of running, uh, with strength training, with motor control training, endurance training, whatever the, whatever I or the client needs. Um, and then when you're into running, you'll have this amazing carryover of like, oh wow, my push off feels so much better because I've been working on this, you know, single leg heel raise and therefore I'm more efficient. So obviously this is going to look different for every runner, but if you were to design a program, uh, let's say a, a bulletproof your hip preventative, like nothing's wrong, but let's just optimize what you have and keep you as strong as possible. What would that program look like? Strength training, plyo, like what are we looking at here? Yeah, for sure. So I have thought a lot about this because I do a lot of programming. And then I also have for, for my clients that have gone through my program, it's called the Empower Hip Program, which is just so corny, but I love it. Um, I give them the option to go into a maintenance plan, which is just what you're talking about. So it's like, you've worked through your impairments, you're, you're good, things are symmetrical, or, you know, not symmetrical, things are looking good. What do you need to maintain where, where you're at strength wise, or just, um, I always want to say dry land training, but we're not dry land training because we're not swimmers. I, when it makes sense to me. I used to swim. So I'm like, yeah, dry land stuff. Yeah. Like, yeah, hit the weight room. We're good. <laughs> yeah. Like just not running training. Um, the things that I like to put into my programming is, so I always talk, like compound lifts. So lifts that are like, we're lifting a little bit heavier weight. Um, we're doing pretty simple motion. So things like squats, lunges, deadlifts, uh, heel raises, uh, lateral lunges. And I want to have some of those things in every plane of motion. So I want moves that we're going like, uh, forward and backwards moves that we're going side to side, like lateral lunges, um, or moves that we're moving in the transverse plane, which is like that rotation, uh, which those ones can be a little bit hard to lift heavier. Um, but I want to have compound lifts in those three ones. And then I also want to have accessory things. So these are things like maybe clamshells where they're, you know, I'm not weight. I don't have all my body weight bearing on the, on the ground, but I am working some of these muscles that tend to be a little bit more injury prone. Um, so things like, uh, 
you know, quadruped, like hands and knees, uh, like, uh, what's it called? Bird dog. We were like extending one arm and, and extending the opposite leg or side planks with the clamshell or I don't, all these just different accessory motions that are kind of working these things that we see to be a little bit more injury prone. So we have our compound lifts, our accessory lifts, and all three planes of motion. And then the last thing is plyometrics. Um, the Montana Run Lab, I think that's what it's called, does amazing studies. Um, and they've just found that plyometrics with lifting have been excellent, excellent for bone health, uh, muscle, bone, joint integrity for runners. That's so cool. And yeah, Montana Running Lab, if nobody's following them, like you should, they, their stuff's really cool. Um, so good. Yeah. Okay. I love this. Now he, I can already hear in the back of my mind, a runner saying, oh my God, like, but I spend so much time running, like, isn't running enough. I run up hills. Mm-hmm. I run down hills. I run fast. I run slow. Like, do I really need to do all this other stuff? Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, I, I recently ran into this the other day with one of my runners um, who was like, I'm running seven days a week. Like, isn't that enough? Don't I, you know, isn't that enough? Um, And it's not, unfortunately. I think of strength training like putting a little bit more gas in the tank to be able to run and sustain on your running days. Um, and, and I do think a huge piece of it is for runners mentally is it's not the same, like going into a gym, going into, you know, your garage, it just, you don't get that same like endorphin release. You don't get that same feeling of, of being outside or whatever. Um, and my, uh, my like technique or tool that I will do with myself or do with runners is like, do what you need to get it done. And you could do anywhere from like one to three days a week. Like truly, even if you're strength training one day a week and you're in peak marathon season, that's phenomenal. Um, you know, invest in weights and do it in your backyard. Uh, just do it in the comfort of your home if that's comfortable for you. Invite your friends over and do it together. Um, just find something, find ways to make it like enjoyable for you. Um, I also have a free strength training program for runners. It's on my link tree as well. If anyone's like, what do I do? Like, I have no idea what to do. Just grab that, try it and, and go for it. Something I've heard a lot from uh, runners who have come back from injury or dealing with injury is that they are so afraid of lifting heavy or heavy enough because they don't want to re-injure themselves, which is 100% a valid concern. But obviously we shouldn't be doing crazy heavy lifting if we're like actively in pain. (laughs) But but we are going to receive the most benefits when we can load those tissues appropriately. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, So my guide rails, handrails is totally what you just said. Don't lift if it's painful. Um, you, but you do want to get to a point where you're, um, able to, uh, improve that tissue tolerance. So let's say you have been injured and, you know, it is like a tendinopathy of your Achilles and you're like, I'm super afraid to do heel raises because in the past that has been an aggravator for me. Okay. Well, let's say now you're kind of, you know, not as you're not in pain anymore. You're quote unquote healed from that. We need to increase the integrity of that tissue to be able to meet the demands of running again, which is like a million heel raises over and over as you're pushing off. Um, and the fastest way that you can do that without having those, uh, quick demands of running is via strength training. Um, so if you're, if you're weary about strength training or don't know what dosage to do, like that is what strength training coaches are for, or like physical therapists, physical therapists really should have a good understanding of that, like return to sport, um, demands and like what dosages that they could prescribe for you to do. I want to ask about a couple of the, uh, you know, I think more 
strength training movements that we tend to see on the, let's say like just on the kind of the lifting side of the, of space, but would also be very helpful for runners. Cause obviously you talked about squats. There's a couple different kinds of squats you can do deadlifts, yeah. different kinds of deadlifts you can do things like hip thrusts, right? Yeah. So these tip, these things that you might see, like, let's say you have like a powerlifting background, but now you're a hundred percent endurance runner. You might yeah. still have some overlap, but a running specific strength training program is not going to be the same as somebody who's like an Olympic lifter. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So differences that you might see, I mean, uh, differences that you'll see is are largely in, in dosages. So, um, for someone who's like an Olympic lifter, they're, I believe mostly like power lifting. So they're trying to move stuff over a really fast period of time. We're not doing that with endurance athletes. So we want to be able to move our bodies for a long time at a kind of slow pace compared to the Olympic lifters. Um, so we'll see different dosages depending on maybe where you're at in your um, training season, anywhere from like true strength training, which is like six to eight reps. Maybe you're, you know, if you're working with a strength coach, they'll put you in more hypertrophy, which is like six to, or 12 to 15, or maybe they'll put you in more endurance, which is like, 15 to 20. Um, and there'll be different reasons why they would have you in those different areas. And then as far as moves go, um, I really love, like if a runner is really a runner and they don't really want to be lifting, I love just loading single leg, like single leg squats, uh, lunges, like step ups, uh, side lunges, drop downs, just stuff where you're like isolating your single leg, which is literally what you're doing over. You're just single leg hopping over and over when you're running, um, single leg deadlifts, isolating those things out will allow you to be strong, get strong, and hopefully overcome any like side to side differences that you have when you're training. I love that. That's, I mean, cause I'm sure you hear this too, you know, a runner will say like, Oh, I know I need to strength train. So I downloaded that, like, you know, the five by five, you know, lifting program off the internet, or I'm following, you know, this bodybuilding plan. And I'm like, well, that, yeah. I mean, yeah, you, okay. Like, yay, better than nothing, yeah. but yeah. not the best fit, probably way more than you need for your specific needs. And also like, you're probably just going to get burned out if you try to do both. For sure. For sure. And like, like you said, something's better than nothing. You probably will feel amazing when you're running while you're doing that plan because you're, you know, loading a lot. Um, but is it the best thing for you to be doing to make your running better? And are you mentally going to be able to handle doing both? I don't know. So I want to talk about our mother runners out there because we know that having kids, right? A lot of hip activity involved in the growing and yes. birthing process for our little human yes. beings. So talk to me about the, I would say the, the things that our pregnant um, and postpartum runners should be aware of when it comes to their hip health. Yes. Oh my gosh. This is such a good question. So I will answer your question with a story. Um, I have a runner who came to me. I met her at run group. She's phenomenal. She was running with me and it's dark out at this point because it was in the winter. And, uh, you know, I started asking her about her life. We're just chatting. And she's like, yeah, I'm like six months pregnant. And I was like, I literally cannot even tell. Like she had a coat on, you know, but I was like, like, she's a basketball mom. Like there's like nothing in there. Like I'm like, how are you pregnant? Um, and we started talking about what we do and, and, you know, I told her what I do for work and she's like, oh my gosh, like I have hip pain when I run all the time. Like it's not terrible, but it, it pretty much lasts, um, for like two days after I run. And I ended up taking her on as a client as she was pregnant. Um, and we got her amazing. Like she was really, really phenomenal. She has like um, for her diagnosis, I would say is like, she has probably a label tear in like the groin area. Um, and then maybe just some like degrading of her cartilage. Um, and she had overactivity of like those adductor hip flexor muscles, um, and pelvic floor. So, you know, it really wasn't too severe, but that's what she's working with. Um, we got her amazing. She was running, uh, three miles every other day 
and that was her choice. Like she's goes a little bit longer typically, but with the end of pregnancy, she was like, that's all I can do, which is amazing. Um, her hip was like pretty much pain-free. She delivered via C-section, uh, like, and I probably saw her four weeks after that. And we started PT then this woman is like probably top 1% of C-sections, like her scar, very little swelling. Uh, she had a little bit of abdominal separation, very, very little bit, uh, like, her like the strength to her hip the one that was painful had degraded slightly um then once we did like our kind of return to run with strength and like return to run progression um she still is not and this has been probably three months now she's still not back to where she was when we were like pre-partum um she's probably gosh like 80% of the way there and she can actually run totally fine running is not really painful for her but now it's flat walking that bothers her because she's having a little bit of um abdominal and like low back weakness that is causing that to happen so I I tell this story to really lay out the fact that like your body is going to be a little bit different postpartum. Um, and it's, it's totally worth it to put the work in like while you're pregnant, it's not a waste of time. Um, and then after, like you still might need to just get a little bit of things, uh, nitpicked to like get back to what you love doing. But also you can't rush it. I'm thinking if, if it's only been a couple months, like that's amazing. Obviously I know that everybody's journey is different, you know, with pregnancy and giving birth and some moms take, months to get comfortable enough to start running again or to start that return to run progression but like that's amazing and i think that so often we know we're in this place where it's like you know here's the thing i'll say having worked with pregnant runners obviously like the safety issue comes first like your doctor has to clear all this stuff but sometimes they're so hesitant to like start like you said that rehab process during pregnancy because it's like well like i'll just deal with it it's just must be a normal part of pregnancy like i'll just deal with this afterwards yeah and like your body is this amazing adaptable thing and there's so much we can do to support our bodies kind of no matter what stage we're in like even let's say even if she wasn't comfortable running anymore i'm sure you still would have worked with her on this hip issue oh for sure and like you know, maybe she didn't feel comfortable running in the, in the third trimester. But what if she was like, I still have the goal of wanting to be able to run comfortably after I deliver. Okay, maybe we would work on like some low end plyometrics to maintain her tissue integrity, to maintain her plyometric control. So then, you know, to comfort. And then when she delivered, she would be like, this actually doesn't feel too foreign to me. It hasn't been too long since I've done these things. And obviously with pregnancy and being postpartum, especially that like you're like newly postpartum, there are, your body does move around, your pelvis does widen, like your ligaments, like that would relax in, like literally your ligaments loosen. I would imagine in that situation, we have a lot of the similar concerns that some of our hypermobile runners would have. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of gals will, especially gals that have really never complained of having low back pain or hip pain. Um, will experience that in some of the phases, or if not all, um, of pregnancy. And one of my favorite tools that I've given the moms that I've worked with is I call them, these aren't necessarily, I call them rescue exercises or um, just things that you could do throughout the day. So I'll be like, okay, like you typically get a little bit sore uh, after you've been, you know, running around with the other kiddo at like 10 AM. And then you probably get a little bit sore later in the day, whatever. I'll give them a couple exercises to do. And like literally like a standing exercise, I'll be like, do two sets of 20, put this band on your door. So it's always there. You can just kind of like go do it. And it just gives you like a little bit of a boost into your muscles around all of the things that are relaxing. So you get that stability and then You could do it again later if things get a little bit sore, just making it easy, manageable, but like you have something that can make you feel better. The very last thing I want to ask you about, because you've mentioned it a couple of times and I I am just, I want to talk about it is the labrum and labral tears. Cause you've mentioned Mm -hmm. a couple of times 
asymptomatic labral tears. Yeah. Um, talk to me about that because I think we think, oh my God, tear, like got to fix it, got to fix it. Something's wrong. Sounds like yeah. you can have this issue. And if you're asymptomatic, it might be okay to live with. Totally, totally. So there is- First of all, sorry, what is the labrum? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Great question. Um, so the labrum is, it's, it's a cartilaginous tissue that sits in the hip joint. So we have the ball and socket joint um, and it lines that joint to increase congruency. So it tries to just increase the suction. Um, the hip joint is like very, very stable. I think it's like the most stable joint in the body. Um, but we have that labrum in there to just like keep it sucked in and keep it nice and tight. Um, and the labrum is cartilage. So people will often, most people will get um, a more of like a degenerative labral tear where it's like, oh, your hip has been rubbing on this area for a long period of time. And then it's kind of just degraded that tissue. Some people will get a traumatic labral tear. I think I've only worked with like maybe two or three people that have had that. But that's like you fall skiing and like your leg is like thrown behind you and, you know, it's torn and it's pretty painful. Um, so that's kind of the, the skinny on labral tears. But um, there's a study done and I can't remember who the author is, but it showed that like 50 to 60 percent, it was uh, doing MRIs of symptomatic and asymptomatic people, 50, per, 50 to 60% of the people in that study, and maybe indicative of that entire population, um, have labral tears, whether they are symptomatic or not. Um, a great story I'll tell is one of my patients came to me. I was a third physical therapist she came to. She was like, something's not right with my hip. And I was like, okay. So I sent her to a doctor and we, she showed signs of bone stress injury. So I sent her to a doctor and clear as day, there was two bone stress or bone stress fractures on her hip. And in her findings, there was also, and it was in like her glute. So it wasn't even really near her like hip crease at all. Um, in her findings, there was the two stress fractures and then there was a labral tear, like a finding of a labral tear. And I didn't say anything about the labral tear because I didn't think it was a big deal. And neither did she. Like, she has a labral tear and we don't even care. You know, we're not even worrying about it um, because that wasn't the main thing. But there totally is a possibility that you have one and it's it's not a problem. If you have a symptomatic labral tear, is there anything you can do about it? Yeah, yeah. So for those of us that have symptomatic ones, we're just the unlucky ones, but it's okay. It's all about mindset. Um, there's lots that you can do. So when I said earlier about your hip having that poor organization and sensation of like where your pain is coming from, you could have a labral tear and it's actually not your pain generating structure. Um, or you could have a labral tear that's causing you to have decreased, uh, you have a little bit more mobility in your hip because that like congruency is kind of not wrecked, but just decreased. Um, because of that, you can have these other factors that are going on. So you can have increased muscle guarding. Like if you imagine all the muscles that attach to your hip are like suctioning and like trying to grip on for dear life and they're becoming really tight. Um, you can have some muscles that are working really, really hard to increase that congruency and you're getting tendinopathies. So oftentimes with people that have labral tears, like we calm down those muscles we get things um, moving and like we improve, improve the motor pattern. Uh, we improve the recruitment of the muscles around the hip and they're like, oh, I don't even have pain anymore. Or, or, you know, some things make me painful, but we can work around it. Oh my God. That's fascinating. It's really cool. Oh, wow. Oh my gosh. This has just been the best conversation. So much action packed, drama filled hip talk for runners. Uh, thank so you. Thank you for sharing your wisdom with us. Sarah, if somebody's li listening to this episode going, I need help. I am a runner with hip pain yeah. and I need help. How can somebody get a hold of you, work with you, learn from you? Yes. So the easiest way to directly chat with me is strategywithsarah.com. That's how you can book a call with me. Um, my Instagram has all the links to my freebies, goodies, uh, different ways to talk to me. And I am always open in the Instagram DMs. 
when I respond, it's me. People are like, is this a bot? And I'm like, no, it's me. I had an email the other day or a DM asking like, what's the best email for Elizabeth? I was like, hi, it's me. Like, this is my email address. Thank you for asking. Like, it's always me. (laughs) It's always me. Unless, unless it's like, you commented run strong and like there's a delivery of like literally a text box okay that's not me but like if I'm like hey Megan that's me yeah (laughs) the one woman show Sarah thank you so much for your time today for being here I hope that our listeners got to learn something and are on their way to improving their hip health yes thank you so much for having me it was so fun hope you've enjoyed this episode don't forget you can always find and follow me on instagram at running explained and if you're looking for a coach or a training plan check me out visit my website runningexplained.co that's runningexplained.co see you next time this content is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice diagnosis or treatment always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you have regarding a medical condition